This week, Elon Musk files amended counterclaims against Twitter. Cineplex seeks stay relief to continue Canadian appellate litigation against Cineworld debtors. Citibank stipulates to stay of adversary in $500 million mistaken wire transfer litigation. Bosch receives tenders from $5.6 billion of notes by early deadline. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's Deep Dive, America's Court Credit by Reorg Deputy Managing Editor Kevin Eckhart joins us to discuss the ramifications of a recent panel decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversing Judge Dennis Montali's December 2019 ruling in the PG&E case that unimpaired unsecured creditors are not entitled to post-petition interest on their claims at the contractual default rate in a solvent debtor case. It's Friday, September 16th. On Thursday, Elon Musk filed the public version of his first amended counterclaims against Twitter. Musk's counterclaims rely heavily on the now infamous whistleblower complaint by former Twitter employee Peter Mudge Zatko. Musk claims that Zatko's allegations cement Musk's right to walk away from the merger agreement due to what Musk says are Twitter's serious information security vulnerabilities and material non-compliance with a 2011 FTC consent decree. The amended counterclaims also take the position that Twitter does not own or license portions of the core code on which its operations rely, giving rise to the risk of a material adverse effect because holders of contested IP could sue Twitter, and the result of such litigation would either be the shutting down of Twitter's platform or enormous damages awards. Building further on allegations in Zatko's complaint, Musk says his merger agreement with Twitter was violated by Twitter's alleged violations of other applicable laws, including that Twitter allowed Indian government officials to access user data. On Tuesday, Twitter announced that its stockholders approved a merger agreement between the company and affiliates of Elon Musk, with approximately 98.6% of the votes cast at the special meeting in favor of adopting the merger agreement. Last Friday, Cineplex filed a motion for emergency relief from the automatic stay to continue appellate litigation against the Cineworld debtors. Cineplex says that after over two years of litigation, the parties are now on the verge of obtaining an appellate ruling from a Canadian court. According to Cineplex, the Canadian court ruling could resolve the liquidated amount of Cineplex's $1.24 billion Canadian claim against Cineworld Group. Cineplex has described its claim as the largest unsecured claim against the Cineworld debtors. However, the debtors' list of top unsecured creditors does not include the Cineplex claim, which the debtors dispute. Reorg has been following the Canadian suit since it was filed in July 2020. In December 2021, after three months of trial in Ontario trial court, Cineplex obtained the award against Cineworld for Cineworld's breach of its agreement to acquire Cineplex. The judgment is subject to cross appeals before the Court of Appeals for Ontario, with oral arguments currently scheduled for October 12th and 13th. Cineplex filed its motion with the Bankruptcy Court to ensure those arguments will proceed as scheduled. On Tuesday, Citibank, the administrative agent for the Revlon debtors 2016 term loan, filed a stipulation with the debtors and the official unsecured creditors committee to stay Citibank's adversary proceeding seeking a judgment that Citibank is equitably subrogated to the rights of certain of Revlon's lenders that did not return $500 million that Citibank mistakenly sent them in August 2020. In a landmark ruling in the mistaken wire transfer litigation, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals recently issued an opinion in Citibank's favor, reversing a district court decision that held that the non-returning lenders could keep the funds and remanded the case to the district court for further proceedings. Citibank says that the adversary proceedings should be stayed to allow the remanded litigation to proceed in order to conserve the parties and the court's resources and avoid potentially unnecessary litigation. The non-returning lenders are evaluating their options, including a potential petition for rehearing on banc, according to sources.
In what is never a dull case, lenders under the loan are expected to revive litigation concerning an asset drop-down and recapitalization consummated in 2020. Objectors have alleged that Revlon issued a revolver to manipulate voting to facilitate the transaction, which they say was not permitted because of a breach of the credit agreement sale leaseback limitations. On September 15th, Bosch announced the early exchange results from its tender offer, reporting that as of September 13, approximately $5.6 billion of existing senior notes had been tendered. The company says approximately 47% of eligible note holders tendered notes by the early deadline, up from an initial supporting group comprising 23% of note holders. Although each series of notes showed increased participation from the initial supporting holders, this did not materially help the company's maturity while beginning in 2025. If the early exchange results hold, almost $1 billion of principal would remain under its 2025 notes and approximately $750 million of principal would remain under the 2026 notes. The exchange offer is expected to expire at 11.59 p.m. on September 27th unless terminated earlier. Bosch expects to issue approximately $3.2 billion of new secured notes, consisting of approximately $1.7 billion of new first lien secured notes due 2028 and $351 million of new second lien secured notes due 2030 that would be issued by the company, plus $1 billion of new 9% senior secured notes due 2028 that would be issued by the wholly owned unsecured subsidiary the company created earlier this year. Top Red Stories this week included New York Court Awards Attorney's Fees to DeMeo Following Dismissal with Prejudice of Moby's Tortious Interference Claims Busted Convertible Notes, Recharacterization, Allowance, and Other Issues in Bankruptcy PG&E Seeks En Banc Herring of Ninth Circuit Solvent Debtor Postpetition Interest Decision Advocates for Dissent's Absolute Bar Against Any Postpetition Interest for Unimpaired Creditors Judge Isger approves modified center rule dip facility. Debtors get access to 514 million operational funding, 271 million to purchase ROW loans, 1 billion to refinance pre-petition loans to be escrowed. Kathy Ta is out this week, so instead of LA, we'll be bringing you the week ahead from Force Hills, just on the street from Flushing Meadows, where Carlos Alcaraz just won the U.S. Open on his way to becoming the youngest ever man to hold the number one ranking on the ATP. On Monday, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals is slated to take up oral arguments in the Tal Claimant's appeals of the LTL Management Bankruptcy Court's orders denying motions to dismiss the LTL case as a bad faith filing and granting a preliminary litigation injunction protecting parent Johnson & Johnson and other non-debtors from Talc litigation. Also on Monday, a highly contested hearing in the Creditor Real case as the company asked for Chapter 15 recognition of its Mexican liquidation proceeding and dismissal of the involuntary Chapter 11 case. The ad hoc group unsecured creditors staunchly opposes both motions. Monday will also begin a five-day trial on Eddystone Rail's suit to collect from Frail Gas Partners an arbitration award of approximately $139 million against Bridger Transfer Services related to Bridger Logistics' midstream transportation contract with Eddystone. Bridger Logistics is FGP's now-divested midstream acquisition. On Tuesday, the Aero debtors will be in court to ask Judge Jeffrey Graham for bankruptcy court-supervised mediation aimed at resolving Chapter 11 plan and confirmation-related issues, including combat arms earplugs claims against the debtors and parent 3M company. Also on Tuesday, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals will hear oral argument in the Acorn Plan Confirmation Appeal taken by the Health and Welfare Fund's MDL plaintiffs. The plaintiffs had objected to the debtor's plan and sale conveying all the debtor's assets to their secured lender without payment to unsecured creditors, and the district court had affirmed the bankruptcy court's confirmation ruling, finding plaintiffs' arguments unavailing. Puerto Rico will have an omnibus hearing on Tuesday when UBS Financial Services will seek to enjoin the Employees' Retirement System of the Government of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico and seven former ERS employees from litigating claims brought against UBS in Commonwealth Court. 
On Thursday, also in Puerto Rico, the First Circuit Court of Appeals is scheduled to hear oral arguments in the appeal of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's dismissal of the adversary proceeding brought by six state-chartered Puerto Rico cooperativas, or credit unions, against various defendants alleging they engaged in a fraudulent scheme from 2009 to 2015 to coerce the cooperatives into buying government bonds when the defendants knew the bonds were unsustainable. Finally, on Thursday, the TPC debtors will be in court to seek approval of the disclosure statement to their amended Chapter 11 plan. At a status conference last week, the debtors reported that they and the ad hoc no-holder group reached an agreement in principle resolving a significant amount of litigation, and they were working to resolve issues raised by the UCC and the Port Neches MDL plaintiffs. For this week's Deep Dive, America's Court Credit by Rurik Deputy Manager Editor Kevin Eckhart joins us to discuss the ramifications of a recent panel decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversing Judge Dennis Montali's December 2019 ruling in the PG&E case that unimpaired, unsecured creditors are not entitled to post-petition interest on their claims at the contractual default rate in a solvent debtor case. Welcome back to the podcast, Kevin. Um, thanks for joining us to talk about the re- most recent development in PG&E. As uh, listeners may know, um, the Ninth Circuit recently issued uh, a post-petition interest decision in PG&E that could cost the estate upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, why don't you fill us in on what's happening? Yeah, it, it is. It's possible. It might not cost the estate that much, but we'll see. So um, it, it takes us a couple of years back to when on the eve, of, on, on about New Year's Eve, Judge Montali, Dennis Montali, the bankruptcy judge in San Francisco, issued a decision in the PG&E bankruptcy that um, that was pretty much in line with, with what we've seen afterwards. And that was, um, whether, the, the question was whether unsecured creditors were entitled to post-petition interest at the rate they were uh, provided for in their contract. So for note holders, it was in the indenture, they had post-petition default interest and they wanted that 10% or whatever the amount was, or whether they were limited to interest at the federal judgment rate. Um, The federal judgment rate is a statutory rate set by Congress um, and then sort of adjusted every once in a while. Um, That applies to when, when I say you know, federal judgment rate, when you get a judgment in a federal court, it automatically accrues interest from the date of judgment at this rate. And that rate is tied very closely to the prime rate, which was, you know, near zero for a long time. At the time of the PG&E confirmation, it was below 3%. So we're talking about a pretty sizable difference in the interest rates that would apply to these claims. The, The unsecured creditors, which included unsecured note holders, and it included trade creditors, wanted to get either their contract rate, so what was in the notes, you know, usually there's a 2% default kicker, so it's eight plus 2% or something like that. Um, The trade creditors that did not have agreements with the debtors wanted to get the California state judgment rate that applies to judgments in California state courts, which is also much higher than the federal judgment rate. I think at the time it was about eight or 9%. Um, so these creditors, they, they made the argument that they should get post-petition interest in the bankruptcy case because PG&E's plan treated them as unimpaired. Um, and, and basically what being unimpaired, um, for, for the folks who are less familiar with this, which is not a fight in a lot of bankruptcy cases, so it's not a, a, an issue that a lot of people have a lot of familiarity with. Unimpaired means that if you are unimpaired under a bankruptcy plan, then you don't get to vote on the plan you are deemed to accept it. The idea being that if you get everything you're entitled to, you can't say no to that and demand more. 
Um, and, and the way the code phrases defines unimpairment is basically that you get everything you would otherwise get under state law, subject to what is provided in the bankruptcy code. So these creditors, um, the trade creditors and the note holders said, well, if you're going to call us unimpaired and, and disenfranchise us, keep us from voting no on the plan, you have to give us what we're entitled to under state law. Under state law, we are entitled to full payment of principal, plus pre-petition interest that accrued before the bankruptcy was filed, plus post-petition interest at the contract rate, which would apply under state law, or the state law judgment rate in California. Um, it sounds, it's an argument that has a sort of intuitive feel that the PG&E case was solvent. So, uh, so assets were going, value was going down to the equity holders. Um, so all the creditors should have been paid in full. They're, these classes are being unimpaired. They're not being allowed to vote. And to treat someone as unimpaired, they should presumably get interest at this, the same rate they would have gotten if there was no bankruptcy during the period when the bankruptcy was pending. And the debtors said, no, no, we're, we're not going to agree to that. The debtors said, yeah, that's what you're entitled to under state law. They don't, didn't disagree with that. But they said that the bankruptcy code means that we don't have to give you the state law rates. The bankruptcy code, section 502b2 of the bankruptcy code, bars what's called unmatured interest, which is basically post-petition interest, interest that accrues, um, that has accrued in the future on the claim. So if you're owed interest for 30 years on a loan, you don't have a bankruptcy claim for it when they file for bankruptcy. You are limited to the interest that was accrued at the time the petition was filed. Um, seems a little draconian, but um, obviously there are other exceptions in the code that entitle people to get post-petition interest. Secured creditors almost always get post-petition interest. Um, they're entitled to post-petition interest up to the value of their collateral. So over-secured creditors always get it. Usually secured creditors get it as part of a dip or a cash collateral agreement. Unsecured creditors generally don't get post-petition interest unless, again, it's a solvent case. And if you're gonna pay, the idea being that if you're going to pay money to shareholders, you have to pay all of the claims of creditors who are above the shareholders in the priority level. So the debtor said, no, you don't get that state law interest. We recognize in a solvent case that you should get some interest, um, but the code says you shouldn't. Um, the only way you can get that interest is under sections, and this go, this is a, goes around and around, 726A5 of the code, which entitles creditors to interest before junior creditors get paid. And what they said was, well, in the Ninth Circuit, there's a case, Cardellucci, that said that that rate of interest under 726A5 um, is the federal judgment rate. So they said, all right, you're entitled to interest. We're not going to dispute that um, because this is a solvent case and because we're getting value to shareholders, but you're only entitled to 2.5% or whatever the federal judgment rate was at the time. Incidentally, now it's risen to about 3.25 or 3.5% because of hikes in the prime rate. So Judge Montali, again, not a really controversial decision, said, yes, they're entitled to post-petition interest in this solvent case to be called unimpaired creditors um, and to keep them from voting, but it's only under Cardellucci, my hands are tied, they can only get uh, the federal judgment rate. And a similar decision after Judge Monta. So, so what happened was that that decision was appealed by one of the note holders, Canyon Capital, and by the ad hoc trade group. 
Canyon Capital's appeal was dismissed. The ad hoc trade group goes and does the oral argument at the Ninth Circuit. And in the meantime, a couple other solvent cases happen, most notably Hertz. And the same issue came up in Hertz. Do these unimpaired, unsecured creditors get post-petition interest at the federal judgment rate, or do they get it at the state law contract and default rate? And uh, the Delaware judge in Hertz said, same thing Judge Montali said, they get the federal judgment rate. So it was sort of seen that this was kind of a settled issue. Um, kind of a windfall for the debtors, right? Because they're unimpairing these claims and paying them in full, but they're only paying interest at two and a half percent instead of 10% or whatever the contractual default amount was. And that's why we say hundreds of millions of dollars. Those note holders in PG&E, if they had been entitled to the default rate, um, the claims were so huge in that case that it could have added up to a difference. The difference between the default rate and the federal judgment rate was something like $500 million. Um, the trade group, which actually pursued the appeal to the Ninth Circuit, only holds uh, about 200 plus million in claims. So the difference is a little less. It's tough to calculate because a lot of them didn't have contracts. So we can't just say contract rate versus federal judgment rate, but it's a much smaller universe. And we'll get to why that matters in a second. So the matter goes up to the district court, district court affirms, goes up to the Ninth Circuit. And in a two to one decision, the Ninth Circuit reversed Judge Montali's decision, saying that the credit that if you're going to impair unimpair creditors under a plan and a solvent case, they are entitled to receive their contractual interest or the state law uh, California rate if there is no contractual interest. And their reasoning was this: um, was that um, under the pre-bankruptcy code practice, there was this rule called the solvent debtor exception. And under that rule, post uh, unsecured creditors in solvent cases, they received post-petition interest at their contract or state law rates. The code gets passed in 1978. The code does not specifically say anything overruling that solvent debtor exception. It includes section 502B, which bars unmatured interest, like we said, but that is just a restatement of a provision that was already in the Bankruptcy Act. So nothing has changed. The code didn't change the solvent debtor exception. It's still alive. And under that exception, um, unsecured creditors can get post-petition interest at the contract or state law rate um, under, uh, under notwithstanding 502B under a solvent debtor plan. Um, that itself, and we talked about Judge Montali's decision being pretty down the middle, that decision itself is not that unusual. Judge Isger issued a similar ruling in October 2020 in the ultra petroleum case, another solvent case, comes up in make holes, often make holes in PPIs are kind of linked together. But Judge Isger also ruled that, hey, the, the solvent debtor exception was not overturned by the bankruptcy code. There's no evidence Congress wanted to get rid of this. So I'm going to give them post petition interest at the contractor state law rates. That's now up at the Fifth Circuit. So the Fifth Circuit is considering right now essentially the same issue that the Ninth Circuit decided in PG&E, and it will be interesting to see how they come out on it. So what you have now is you have a decision from the Ninth Circuit in the PG&E case in an appeal brought by these trade creditors, this ad hoc group of trade creditors, a lot of whom are not really trade creditors, 
but um, funds and investors that purchase trade claims at a discount and are now trying to, um, to collect on the full amount of the interest. And what the judges, what the majority, the two out of three judges on the panel uh, of the Ninth Circuit did is they sent it back to Judge Montali and said, okay, first of all, you have to determine what each of these trade creditors, what, what the rate of interest is. Do they have a contract? Does it have a default rate? If not, are they in California? Most likely it's PG&E. And if so, what is the California rate, right? And what rate applies? The second thing they did is they kind of gave the judge an out. They said, even though we're saying that the, the, the California rate or the contract rate should apply, if you find compelling equitable circumstances um, to not give them that rate, then you can decide that. So, so he has a little bit of flexibility, um, but they did say, eh, we don't see any ourselves, but we'll leave that to you. They kind of hinted, there's none here, no equitable circumstances, we'll leave it to you. So it would otherwise go straight back to Judge Montali and he would have to make this decision. The, the, the key for PG&E is there's a question as to whether those note holders whose appeals did not proceed from the, the, the post-petition interest decision can now get post-petition interest themselves um, because only the ad hoc trade group really won that appeal. The argument could be made that they are the only group that now gets the higher rate of interest. And since their claims are so much smaller, it would not be a material effect on the PG&E bankruptcy estate. No doubt some of those note holders, because it's a free option, are going to say, make some argument about some motion in front of Judge Montali that says you can't give post-petition interest at the contract rate to the trade creditors and not us because that's not proper. If the plan had originally provided for that, it would be unequal discrimination among unimpaired creditors. And we'll see if that works. Um, it's, not a, it's not something that's really come up before. Usually, you know, th there's only one class in a plan that is unimpaired one or two classes, and they're, they're often not challenging the plan. So this issue alone doesn't go up. There's not usually solvent cases. There's maybe a couple a year, like Hertz, ultra petroleum is an old case. Um, so it's not really clear whether Judge Montali has to give these note holders their contractual interest or whether he can say, no, you didn't appeal, you waived it, you didn't raise the issue, and therefore I'm just going to give the higher rate of post-petition interest to these creditors. It's possible that if the note holders, if he finds the note holders are entitled to that post-petition interest and the post-petition interest bill goes up by $500 million, he could say, well, that's compelling equitable reasons not to allow that, was that amount question. because the, com the company would have to write a check for that. Um, so you'll, it'll be an interesting fight. Um, the, the counter argument to you can't give them contractual interest and not us we have to sort of go back to before the plan and rewrite the plan and then reconfirm it. That would basically be the note holders argument and sort of reconsider confirmation um, with this altered rule. Um, the counter argument to that would be, you know, again, you didn't appeal and it's not an unequal treatment issue because the note holders are in a separate class under the plan. Um, there's a common argument in bankruptcy appeals when there is an appeal of an issue affecting uh, one creditor in a class objects to confirmation, the rest of the class votes yes. 
It goes up on appeal. The debtor will say it's equitably moot, one of our favorite doctrines. And there's a common argument that it is equitably moot because if you rule for this one creditor in the class, then you'd have to give the same treatment to everybody else. You can't just give this guy what he wants and not everyone else in class because then you have one creditor in a class being treated different than, than the others. And, and that often comes up and, and no doubt the note holders will cite those cases and those arguments for saying you can't give something to the trade creditors you don't give to us. The difference here, the distinction is that these are two different classes. So there would be different treatment between two different classes as opposed to treatment of one creditor within, that appealed within a class that otherwise didn't. Um, but it'll be interesting. I, you know, I'm sure there's other arguments that they'll make, but it is a fairly fertile ground. There's really not a lot out there and Judge Montali really will have a difficult decision to make. I mean, he may, <laughs> if he really wants to restore the effect of his original decision, he may allow the note holders and say they are entitled to contractual interest, but that's compelling equitable circumstances. No doubt it will be appealed upwards, um, whatever decision he makes. So it's gonna be interesting. He hasn't really scheduled um, any proceedings on it because PG&E, before it went down on remand, um, ask, has asked the Ninth Circuit, this was just on August 12th, has asked the Ninth Circuit to reconsider its decision, um, the panel's decision on Bonk. So they've asked for the entire Ninth Circuit to weigh in on whether they agree with this panel. Um, and that's really fascinating because it brings up the other big issue that this decision raises, which is the dissent. Um, I, I was talking about the arguments PG&E made in bankruptcy court. And their argument was always, yes, in a solvent case, these unsecured, unsecured creditors are entitled to post-petition interest. They never argued they weren't. The only argument was what the, what the rate of interest was. And so the opinion comes out and there's two judges in the majority, like I said, they say, yes, they get post-petition interest, solvent debtor exceptions survived the enactment of the bankruptcy code and they get it at contract and state law rates. What the, the dissent, Judge Sandra Kuda said, um, was something that would be familiar to a lot of the Federalist Society types out there and to, and to Supreme Court scholars as a very strict statutory construction view. Her view was that 502b2 of the code, which we talked about, is clear, says that there is no post-petition interest for unsecured creditors or for any creditors unless otherwise provided in the code. It's provided otherwise in the code for secured creditors. Um, there is nothing in the code that says that unsecured creditors can get post-petition interest, solvent case or no solvent case. So that's it. The code says no, you don't get any interest at any rate, if you are an unsecured post-petition, an unsecured, you don't get any post-petition interest if you are an unsecured, unimpaired creditor in a Chapter 11 case, solvent, insolvent, whatever. And that's a very radical position. The, the majority, of course, points out, first thing they say is, PG&E didn't even ask for this, right? They said all along they get interest. Everybody agrees there was no case that they could find that supported the judge's view. Um, the cases have been pretty uniform. They're either on the ultra petroleum, you get contract or you get um, state law rate or the Hertz, you get the federal judgment rate. Judge Montali followed that. There, there were no cases. And there's a really good reason for that. The Congress, there was a decision that agreed with Judge Akuda in 1994 
And a court, a bankruptcy court said under 502b2, no post-petition interest for anyone, for any unsecured creditor, solving case or not. Congress didn't like this, or lobbyists didn't like this and convinced their congressmen not to like this. So within a few months, I mean, this decision was radically hated. Within a few months, Congress amended the bankruptcy code specifically to overturn that decision and make it clear that um, creditors could get post-petition interest in solvent cases. Judge Akuta's decision ignores that. It's, it, I should say, it doesn't ignore that. What she basically says is, yeah, that's what Congress said when they passed an amendment to the bankruptcy code in 1994. But they didn't add any language that explicitly said that in the bankruptcy code, so that doesn't matter. All that matters is the language in the bankruptcy code, 502b2, and, and she goes into, you know, the majority was talking, talked about the Bankruptcy Act laws and the, the solvent debtor exception under the Bankruptcy Act. And she says, I don't care about that either. Congress passed a statute in 1978 that says X. And so everything that happened before that, whatever Congress's intent in passing the code, whatever Congress's intent in amending the code in 1994, I don't care. The language of 502b2 says no unmatured interest, so no post-petition interest, unless somewhere else in the code it says otherwise. And it doesn't say that otherwise. The funny thing is it does say otherwise for impaired creditors. So she acknowledges that there is kind of a ridiculous impact from this. And the majority harps on this. They say under the best interest test, impaired creditors have to get accounting for their post-petition interest. So you, you could have cases where impaired creditors get post-petition interest, unimpaired ones, and I'm making finger quotes there, do not. And she says, so what? That's Congress problem, not my problem, go away. So it, it's a radical, it's, you know, it used to be radical, 25 years ago, radical, now right down the middle for the Fed social types. So I wrote a, a column last week and I talked about this and I said, you know, this is dangerous for bankruptcy lawyers because this kind of strict reading of the bankruptcy code is would eliminate huge chunks of what happens in bankruptcy cases every day. The non-debtor releases, the non-debtor litigation injunctions and extensions of the automatic stay, essential vendors, you know, paying vendors at the beginning of the case, paying employees, um, all kinds of creative solutions that bankruptcy lawyers take for granted are not in the code anywhere. And the adoption of this kind of thinking, this, this is what the code says, that's it, would really make bankruptcy a lot more difficult. The, the irony here is on August 12th, PG&E files this motion for reconsideration of the decision and they're asking the whole Ninth Circuit to adopt the dissent. So they are saying, yeah, no interest. I know we were just arguing about interest rate before, but they're saying that Judge Akuta's dissent is the best reading of the, of the law. And so not only should there be no interest at, at the rates that the majority said, there should be no post-petition interest at all for unsecured creditors, even in solvent cases. Um, and if the whole Ninth Circuit were to adopt that, it, it would establish a really crazy precedent for strict construction of the bankruptcy code that could be extremely dangerous.
Because the ninth, I mean, the Ninth Circuit has a reputation sometimes for being maverick, but would they? But there's they don't necessarily have a reputation for going into that direction of being strict constructionists. But I guess you never know with them, right? They're yeah, kind well, of all over the place. I mean, I don't think the Ninth Circuit will grant reconsideration because on bonk reconsideration is really difficult to get. It's rare. Um, it doesn't necessarily, even if they reconsider it, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll agree. They may reconsider it and go with the majority just so they could say, that's crazy. We're specifically not doing that. Um, the, the real danger here is, well, if they do grant reconsideration and go with that, or, you know, the real danger is we got the Ninth Circuit's fairly liberal court when it comes to the strict construction stuff, like you're saying. And if you know, there's a judge on a panel in the Ninth Circuit who will say this. There's a lot more of them in the Fifth Circuit where Houston is and the Third Circuit. It's going to be a lot easier to get a majority of one panel in one of the other circuits to, to adopt a crazy ruling like this and completely wreck huge chunks of bankruptcy practice. If you had two Judge Akutas, which is a lot more likely in the Fifth Circuit, because there's a lot more of her in the general pool, there's a lot more likelihood you'll get two of them on one panel at three, then you could be looking at real trouble. Um, the, the other issue here is that I find fascinating, and we're not going to get too deep into this for obvious reasons, but counsel for PG&E is taking a huge risk here. And it creates, it, it sort of brings up one of the constant looming conflicts for bankruptcy, for debtors counsel. And that is, that the position they're taking for PG&E in the Ninth Circuit, if adopted, and if there is this strict constructionist view gets endorsed by a circuit court, it could endanger what they're trying to do for other debtors. Um, of course, their ethical responsibility is to do what this client wants. But when you keep representing debtors all the time, that's you might end up walking into something that could wreck your next case if that debtor wants to get non-debtor releases and a bankruptcy judge or a district judge or a circuit judge in another circuit says, I'm citing PG&E for strict construction of the bankruptcy code. This isn't anywhere in the bankruptcy code. So, sorry. Um, it, it's, it's a fascinating dilemma. I mean, it's not really a dilemma because as lawyers, they have to do what's best for their client, but they must be thinking about it. No, it's a good, it's a good point. Here. <laughs> They're prominent. The PG&E is represented by a very prominent law firm. Yeah, yeah, debtors council. So you know when we have the same three or four firms who do all these big debtor cases, um, this is a constant issue for that for these lawyers that that the best thing for a debtor in one particular case may not be the best thing for all of their other debtors or all the other debtors that are lining up. But again, it's not a dilemma for them. They, they have to do it if the client wants them to do it. And if PG&E wants to get that strict constructionist view through, you know, they have to push it. So it, it'll be fascinating to see. I, I don't think the Ninth Circuit is gonna, going to endorse this. Um, but the other problem is if they do, you could see a, an appeal to the Supreme Court. And will the six conservative judges on the Supreme Court and their originalist views, will they be able to wiggle their way out of that view somehow to preserve these important corporate um, 
bankruptcy rights and, and that are very, very valuable to corporations, um, it'll be interesting to see, but you could have a Supreme Court decision on this. I mean, the, ma- the matter could still end up in front of the Supreme Court. Isn't it percolating up through the Fifth Circuit as well? Correct. So it's, it's entirely possible if the Fifth Circuit goes the other way. Fifth Circuit either adopts, let's say the Ninth Circuit says, now we're not going to reconsider this. You have the, ma- the majority decision stands. You have um, post-petition interest for unsecured creditors and solving cases at the contractual or state law rate. If the Fifth Circuit disagrees and says, no, it's the federal judgment rate, or they have a majority that adopts the strict no post-petition interest whatsoever, then you would have a circuit split. And that would invite the Supreme mm-hmm. Court to come into this. And one of the things I've been saying is that bankruptcy lawyers need to be careful about the strict constructionist view because so much in bankruptcy is equitable and and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, made up on the spot. I mean, you're at the hearing, the first day hearing, the judge says, I have a problem with this dip loan and you come up with something because you got to get the company's payroll paid and the strict constructionist view. And I've said this in the context of, you know, the Supreme Court and circuit courts roping in administrative law judges, roping in district court judges and limiting their discretion and their authority. Um, that kind of those kind of limitations would be very dangerous for the bankruptcy system. So I've been saying for a long time, you know, we all got to be careful about this. Try to keep the stuff, the making stuff up, the innovations a little lower. Don't push the envelope off the table. Um, but we still get, you know, companies trying to get very broad non-debtor releases. Um, you still got the Texas two-step cases. In many ways, the bankruptcy system is just begging to be reined in. And um, this could be one of those moments where on a, on what seems like a very narrow, very rare issue, solvent case, what's the interest rate, could end up producing um, a decision that has really huge ramifications for the bankruptcy system and really costs a lot of uh, really undermines a lot of the flexibility that makes the system work. Um, and, and so that's, you know, and that's what reorg worries about. That's what, that's what bankruptcy lawyers worry about. We're sort of in a ignored corner over here and we get away with improvisation that other district judges no longer get away from because of this strict view that, that eight federal agencies no longer get away with that administrative law judges don't get away with it. Um, taking away you know, jury trial rights and releasing non-debtors. This is all stuff that bankruptcy keep our heads. We got to keep our heads down to keep being able to do this stuff, which is important. Um, as much as I rag on non-debtor releases myself, I recognize they're often the you know, the best way to solve these situations. But if you push it too far, someone's going to notice. Um, I looked at the Federalist Society's list of papers on bankruptcy. There have been a couple presentations. But you don't want to get caught in, in the direct line of sight with these folks while you're out there, um, you know, confirming plans t- less than 24 hours after the case was filed. You know, when you're um, sealing half the docket, um, the kind of things where they may help reorganization, but they're just begging for some of these um, judicial nut- <laughs> judicial nutters 
to use the English term, to come in and rope them in. So uh, it's really fascinating. It'd be interesting to see. Um, I would hope the Ninth Circuit is not going to reconsider this, but um, it'll be a really interesting situation. All right, Kevin. Well, when uh, when the latest development occurs, we'll have you on. And yeah, we'll us, talk yeah. again when Ultra rules. And it'll, yeah, we'll we'll see if the dark clouds are rolling in as thick as as you say they might be. <laughs> well, I'm a bankruptcy lawyer, so pessimism comes naturally. I I remember when I was at the law firm. And they said, well, let's get together a, a crisis management sub-practice group. And, uh, you know, someone said, you know, bankruptcy folks volunteered for it. And someone said, well, bankruptcy crisis? He said, that's all we do is crisis. That's that's our whole gig. So, um, yeah, you know, you tend to get sort of this negative view. Hopefully we'll be able to survive the sort of, you know, there's enough reining in like the Arrow 3M, which we didn't talk about, but you know, every once in a while when a bankruptcy judge says, I'm not going to grant these injunctions, I'm not going to let this mass tort case interfere with an MDL, it's good for the system. It, it's, it's not good when this kind of relief is just routinely granted um, because it creates this kind of negative attention. So we'll see. We'll talk again. All right, Kevin. Thanks again. No problem, David. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.